I guess as an entrepreneur, there's a blindness about um, what could could punch you in the face. So for the enthusiasts, they they see what the the fun is in the business. They they maybe recognize that there is hard work behind it. They just don't know how easy it is to lose money when you lose focus. We're going to do our best to get new thinking out there. There's going to be discussions centered around growth and new thinking. That's where those great ideas come from, exploring them together. Nuggets that you can go back and put into your dealership that'll help you make more money. This is GarageCast. Podcast. This is episode number 25. On the line with me, I have uh, Sam Dantzler. Sam, how we doing, dude? I am fantastic. I got caught out in a rainstorm yesterday on a bicycle. Other than that, I, you know, if that's the worst thing that happens to me on a given Thursday, life is pretty good. So you were telling me before we started this call that uh, you finally went to a restaurant yesterday. Yeah, yeah big, yeah. big hurrah. It's funny that we say big hurrah, but in all honesty, man, we went last week to a restaurant just across the street from the house here, and it was a massive hurrah. It's like I was skipping through the <laughs> through the restaurant to get to my table. It felt awesome. It's very odd to walk to your table wearing a mask only to take it off and order a beer and have someone bring it to me. But you know what? After that first beer, the second one went down far better than the first one. <laughs> hey, man, I'm super excited for our special guest that we have on. So I'm going to go ahead and let you intro him, and then we're going to get moving on this. James Good is on the line with us, and James has a, a very diverse background. I'm going to let him get into that. But I started seeing James popping up at a lot of industry events in the bicycling industry. He has multiple rooftops in the North Carolina industry. You know, you start seeing the same person coming to your industry events, whether it's the IBD Summit or Interbike or something like that. And you're like, man, this guy's just not getting it. He just keeps coming to these training events. <laughs> right? that's, that's one side of the fence. And then the other side of the fence, you're like, or maybe he really is getting it. And he's, and he's installing this stuff. I did some work in dealership with James, and we've become uh, pretty good friends since. We're doing a race together this year that I'm very excited about. But James is very much like Jeff Bohannon from ProtoMet. If you guys have been listening to the podcast series a couple weeks ago, I had introduced a friend of ours, Jeff Bohannon, ProtoMet. They make brackets for the high-end boating world, and Jeff has a philosophy of beat yesterday. And he doesn't say it like that. That's actually a tagline from Garmin. But beat yesterday is in all aspects of his life, in his business, in his personal life, in his professional life, he wants to beat yesterday. And I found this out about James James, when we first met, he's a very introspective guy, and then you realize that he understands the emotion of cycling, but he plays at a different level. He plays in the business world above the emotion, and not many people as enthusiasts can pull that off. So without further ado, let's get him on the line. James, are you there? I am. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's Friday. I can't, uh, I can't, can't complain. This is a great day. Thanks for joining us on this bad boy, man. This is awesome. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you. And, and Sam was very gracious. So what, what an intro. <laughs> East Coast time, almost 9 o'clock. And James, first thing he says is, why do you have these things so damn early in the morning? 
yeah, I feel like this should be over some some bourbon or something. And uh, people judge me when I drink this early. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, we don't. That's what we're doing right now is drinking. Yeah, you think this is straight coffee I'm having. You're out of your mind. <laughs> For the people out there listening to this podcast um, that don't know you or don't know where you come from, why don't you go ahead and start from zero and give us a, give us your background. Starting from zero, we were four stores in, in North Carolina, you know, selling bicycles. And, you know, my, my background, I'm still a practicing CPA. I, I do people's taxes. Um, I tell folks I'm a professional paper pusher. So getting into uh, this this cycling business was definitely a, a, a game changer for me and something that uh, really really is a new new chapter in my life. So are you from North Carolina? Give us your background. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Uh, you know, kind of personal level. What? Give us uh, your background. Oh, you want to go deep? All right, all right. Um, so. Born in, in West Virginia, but um, you know, back in the eighties, the the saying was, uh, when you moved out of West Virginia, you took as far as drive as as the, the gas tank could take you. So uh, that landed me in in Burlington, uh, North Carolina, under one year of, of age. From then on, most of my life has been around in the, the Charlotte area. I can't, I can't say I'm a a native since my my wife can claim that so she's one of two people that have been born and raised in charlotte west virginia man i'm but you, you said that and immediately i'm thinking of john denver song where he says almost heaven west virginia and i don't know that i've put those two things together yet <laughs> i can certainly guarantee i've never put those two things together <laughs> So you found yourself in North Carolina, and then, I mean, did you obviously just jump into the bicycle industry, or what did you do before that? You know, just you know, making little dirt jumps and riding my, my Huffy uh, and, and breaking myself on, on those uh, little jumps that we made. And, yeah, spending a lot of time on the bike, I guess, just thinking about it. Um, I never wanted to ride a, a school bus. I never wanted to be inside one of those things, so I always rode my bike to school. Some of the busiest highways in Charlotte. And thinking back, I was wondering why my parents would allow me to do something like that, but it's contributed to what uh, what I do now, which is still commuting by bike all the time. You've got your store. I don't know what to call it, but on Strava, everybody from your store seems to be on it, and you guys uh, have that dashboard where you're trying to beat everybody every single week. What am I? What am I striving for there? What is that thing called on Strava? Is it the leaderboard or? The leaderboard, yeah. So when you're commuting to work every day, you can you can edge your way up on that leaderboard without those big rides. Now that the uh, the store is only about 300 feet away from me, uh, the closest <laughs> one at least, um, the commute is pretty short. So as you as you've seen, I've had to lay down the the hundred plus uh, mile rides to to keep keep up. I'm just going to say you really pissed me off because I was climbing that leaderboard last week. I got to position number three and you immediately bumped me down to five with some of your <laughs> century rides. So thank you for that. <laughs> Those are fun rides. I enjoy them. So where did you uh, where'd you end up going to school, James? College wise. College wise, I was uh, couldn't decide what I wanted to do with my life. So I didn't want to spend a lot of money going to uh, those those big name schools so I just went locally I went to UNC Charlotte and bounced around a, a lot of majors there 
you know, English psychology and uh, my professors asked me, you know, you're supposed to get a, a job when you graduate. And that's when it struck me that, well, <laughs> maybe I should figure out what, I, what I'm going to do with my life. So went to the business school and said I wanted to be an attorney. Give me the, the easiest uh, major. And the advisor said, well, do management. I'm like, all right, sign me up for management. So I went to a couple classes in there and that, that was ridiculous. I, I, that was, couldn't stand to be in, in the, in the classrooms with, with the, the people that were there. So I went back to the advisor and I said, give me your, your hardest uh, major. And he said, that's accounting. I'm like, all right, sign me up for accounting. And, uh, took my first test in one of those classes and being a straight A student when I got the 47 back from uh, the professor, that's when I, I knew I had to start studying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can assure you, Tony has never said to a teacher, give me your hardest class, please, ever. <laughs> no, uh-uh. But he's seen the 47. He can empathize on that side of the fence for sure. That's very, very true, man. How does a CPA jump into the bicycle industry? Well, that's that's real easy when your clients are are bike shops, and uh, I was I was interested in in helping them do their their business better, and that landed me in the trade shows, Interbike and and the like, and that's where I really started chasing the rabbit because it it felt like the business of cycling there there was a lot of potential there. With helping my clients, it, it got me uh, hopelessly intertwined with, with their operations to the point where I came into the ownership. James, I got a question for you. We were talking about um, you had listened to Adam Smith and Mike Davis, our two Harley guys that we had on, on one of our last podcasts. And they had mentioned Adam told a story about he worked at a bicycle shop and his father worked at a motorcycle shop. And he said, well, how many did you sell? And they sold the same amount of units. And Obviously, the motorcycle shop, they, they made more than the bicycle shop, and that's kind of where Adam said, well, I'm going to go play that game. You kind of have a different philosophy on that, do you not? I like to spread uh, my risk uh, across um, as many people as possible so uh, that the more people I can touch in the community, even if it's a you know $300 bike or, or a $10,000 bike, um, my, my intent is to to help anyone who's interested in, in riding a bicycle. Once you get to know James, you realize when he's talking about touching people in the community, he feels the same way about his staff. He really is about allowing cycling to change people's lives, both internally with his team and externally as well. Um, now, you came in as a CPA, and I find it hilarious that you're still doing your CPA work while running multiple retail rooftops, which would spin a lot of people up. But you came in with all the data, all the spreadsheet, all the forecast, did it roll out when you bought that first store exactly like your projections and forecast told you it would? I got smacked in the face. Uh, it was it was humbling. I had all the right numbers and everything made sense. Never in my life had I ever managed people. And <laughs> within a short amount of time, the, the employees all left, and it was me managing a store for, for some time. That was humbling. I think when you add in customers and most certainly staff, that changes the entire game. And 
the immediate thing I heard you say when you said uh, your last statement was I, I reflected back to that famous line that Mike Tyson had was everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face uh, and then it's just a fight, right? So I, I want to back up on one thing that you said, Sam. So am, am I correct in understanding, James, that not only do you are you creating this bicycle empire, but you're still running a CPA firm or an accounting firm? It's a fraction of the size that, that it was. And uh, I was in a partnership previous to this. I had to exit the partnership and I, I managed to hold on to the, the clients who sympathized in my, my situation that I was in. But um, what, what came of that I actually kept the clients that were the ones I, I really enjoyed working with. So I'm in a very good position, uh, I feel like, with, with clients who want to work with me and, and enjoy the experience that I've gained through through business ownership. It's, uh, it's funny that people go to consultants and have that, that halo of, well, these guys must know what they're doing. You know, if, if an accountant hasn't run their own business, it's curious how they can advise on somebody else's couple things. So humbly, what I just heard you say is the answer is yes, you still have a CPA firm, which is nuts that you're running. Uh, and and when, as we get deeper into this interview, it's not just running one single store. You're actually, you're starting to take over large areas. And then two, what I heard you say is that uh, exactly what Sam and I do for business is, yeah, you, you got to at least have some understanding of boots on the ground and what these people do, right? Uh, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's transactional based with, um, doing people's tax returns, but, uh, really getting into, uh, people's lives and, uh, what interests them, um, that translates over to cycling as well. It's, it's what people want to do in their lives that they're most interested in. James, I got a follow up here on this one. I was asking about coming in with data and spreadsheets and forecasting and stuff like that. In your tax return business, you just mentioned the word transactional. It's very transactional, but you start to dive into people's lives as far as what they're interested in, which obviously produces that data and those transactions. When you came into the bicycle industry and you got smacked in the face, as you said, with having to manage people and not only that, really understanding the experience of what it means to ride a bike and i think there are people who ride a bike and then there are people who get after it and they just get indoctrinated to the culture can you share with me a couple of the parallels between the two you alluded to it just a minute ago as far as understanding the emotion and what's driving that customer and the fact that you're doing you know you got four retail rooftops right now while you're running a cpa firm what are the similarities that allow that to work when you're doing somebody's taxes, uh, you have to ask them questions that get them talking about what they've spent their money on. They start to elaborate on on their life since I only get to see them typically once a year. And so that conversation really gets them discussing you know, where, where, they, where they went and where they want to go. I can talk about the past. But uh, the, the future is what, what uh, where my, my value is and uh, doing planning with them for, for the future. How that translates to cycling, it's, it's the same, same discussion. Um, you know, how did they get to my front door? And discovering 
what it is that what what their dream is because yeah it it already took a lot of effort for them to to get to me uh there's a there's that discovery of you know maybe what they want to spend more time with their kids or they're they're not happy with their their current situation with their their weight or to spend more time with their their girlfriend or spouse or you know whatever it is they're they're interested in tony that may be the first time we've had somebody i i mean that was a subtle answer but if you got like that tax coming from the tax world and trying to figure out the future that's the greet in the tax industry right and he's rolled it right into the bicycle <laughs> industry i find that fascinating so james you know you're you're obviously an enthusiast you got hooked on uh, with the bicycling bug early as a huge participant in a lot of different things tell us some of your favorite adventures that you've taken in the past or recently Back in uh, 2005, I think, is when I really dove into uh, road cycling, and that was a result of of, uh, commuting about 43 miles a day, and I I got got in pretty good shape. Uh, There was one year, I think I did 76 uh, Criterium races, really, really chased that, and so the, the NRC races around the country were a lot of fun and just just exhilarating. Just for clear, hang on one sec, James. Just for our audience, who not everyone's a cyclist out there, Criterium Race is when you've got a small, maybe a two mile course in downtown anywhere, maybe Charlotte, and you're just ripping over and over and over around those courses to rack up the miles. It's very high intense, and uh, your heart rate's pegged through the roof. And you did how many? Seventy something of those? It was it was seventy six, and you know some some are more glorious than than others, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the the fun ones I mentioned were the the NRC, which is the National Racing Calendar. So going out to Oklahoma and Ohio and and trying to uh, keep up with people at an average rate of twenty eight to thirty miles an hour is is another humbling experience. <laughs> that turned into more travel related uh, cycling. So I, I got a wild hair and thought I wanted to do um, the RAM, which is the race across America. And in order to do the RAM, you first have to qualify. There's a number of uh, races around the country that, that you can qualify. And so back to uh, the, the suggestion of, you know, I can do the, the easiest one to qualify or I can do the hardest one. So I picked the, the Hoodoo 500 which is a, an interesting race because uh, they, they, they round down. Um, it's actually 529 miles that uh, you have 48 hours to complete. Wow. <laughs> and you, you basically cover the, the southwest quadrant of Utah. Talk about an, another, another humbling uh, experience uh, after 38 hours. Um, I completed the race and for, for all those out there, I was uh, 28 at the time and I was beaten by uh, two 52 year olds. So um, you're never, <laughs> never too old to ride a bike for a long period of time. And ride it well, apparently. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, Sam, sign up for that hoodoo. That's your that's your next one. Right. So you're do you're like all in. When when Tony talks about your great adventures, you're all in on this. You're bike packing, you're road racing, you're how about the mountain bike side? 
another one that uh, I like to tell my customers if if they come in and they they want to buy a bike and they're they're really having a hard time spending six hundred dollars on their first mountain bike and and I I tell them it's like hey guys this is your 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 first bike I don't know that I want to sell this to you because you're going to be chasing that rabbit right down that hole you know mountain biking was the same thing just riding locally around on the trails and now I thoroughly enjoy uh, going to Whistler and doing their their bike park out there just seeing how far I can send it <laughs> I love that so we uh, my my little guys are into bike videos on YouTube and I think about 75% of the videos that they like to watch come out of uh, Whistler and some of those guys on, on that bike park so that is definitely on our short list to get to either this summer or possibly in the fall. So speaking of traveling, obviously Whistler, you're, you're a huge world traveler. Talk to us about some of your favorite places to go. My favorite places to go is wherever the next place that takes me. Um, you know, we were on a, a big cruise kick, um, you know, those big commercial cruise liners and, uh, we would do transatlantic cruises out to Europe and, and, and bounce around in in Europe, and that that was a, a lot of fun. But um, favorite places to go now is where I can I can go ride a bike. <laughs> so you know, Sedona, going to Whistler, um, you know, Pike Parks in the Northeast. But uh, if there's any place that is uh, like of high quality, it's it's going back to the Dead Sea, uh, which is strange, but uh, it's a very curious lake. You you can't you can't leave us hanging there. Keep going. What about the Dead Sea? <laughs> uh, there's an installation out there from from the Israelites called um, Sada, and uh, the, the history there is just so steep, uh, where the the Romans forced their their own Israelites to build a land bridge up to the top of the uh, the, the fort there to uh, assault them. And just standing in that place and looking down at the Dead Sea, which is now a resort town on either side. You've got Jordan on one side and you know Israel on the other. And then this, uh, this lake that you can't put your face in it. There's so much salt in it that your eyes would burn. And there's, there's shower heads all along the lake to make sure that... Um, if you did happen to get some some water in your eyes, you could flush it out. And I happened to get a little too close, of course, you know, risky me. And a, a water droplet just managed to run down the side of my face and touch my my lips, and my lips cracked. <laughs> Damn! Holy cow! Yeah, here I am thinking that you're going to tell me something like, you know, you like to travel to uh, Whistler or. Sam likes to travel to Commerce City, Colorado, something like that, to <laughs> to go on good vacations. And here you are talking about Jordan and Israel standing on him. This is insane. Yeah. No. Uh, so, hey, Tony. So James came to the house when he was in Colorado, and Brandy and I yeah. had him over for dinner. And James sent me a picture of the wines that we should have at the dinner table. Right. And I'm like, oh, this dude's a this this dude's sophisticated, right? So I went out and I bought those wines, and we're sitting here having dinner. And as he's telling me the story about the Dead Sea at the dinner table. Um, that's when I realized that he sent me the picture for the kindergarten wines. And now that he's exposed <laughs> me to the kindergarten wines, he's going to take me up a level. 
he promptly sent me a case of real wine, right? So how, how the heck did you get that deep into wine, James? And how does that fit with your world travels? I guess everything's steeped in my college days because I remember going to a grocery store and staring at a bottle that was eight, $8 for a, a bottle of wine. And, you know, I'm pretty practical about what a bottle of wine can do. And then I look at a case of beer for 12 bucks. I'm like, I can go way longer on a case of beer than a <laughs> dollar bottle of wine. So I bought that bottle of wine because I wanted to figure out what, uh, <laughs> why it costs so much. <laughs> Here's what I just heard you say, that you got into wine in college. Sam and I were drinking wine. It just happened to be like MD 2020 wine or something like that. The, who gets into wine when they go to college? That's insane. Like Sam you know, hinted at the word was sophistication, and I felt like that was that was what I was supposed to do is, is um, you know, learn about something that, uh, you know, people you know, around the world uh, make this stuff. And, uh, you know, when people come in my store now and they're like, what's, what's this concept of having wine and, and beer in a bike shop? And, and I, I tell them that, uh, wine really is the cheapest form of travel out there because, uh, you pop that cork and you can taste, you know, Southern France. You can, you can go to Italy very, very cheaply and, and, uh, Southern California. What a, what a great place and uh, really experience what um, what that area is about. Being in the bicycle industry, you know, Sam and I have a lot of opinions on all the industries that we play in and what's going on in them and how they're operating currently, where they're going, where they've been. What's the biggest missing ingredient in the bicycle industry today, do you think? That's a, that's a good question that, um, you know, it's a, you, you have to dive into that. The, the first word that comes to mind is professionalism that's at the surface and and so I, I say why why is there why is that a missing ingredient and I, I think it's uh, it's a lack of training um, we're, we're missing that as as a profession you know if we want to be practitioners of, of selling bikes and getting people, committed to that lifestyle we need to be highly trained uh, i think there's there's an investment that that we owe to to our staff to keep them highly trained that wasn't something you came in thinking though you and i have had that conversation about you come in with your spreadsheets and it should just go like the spreadsheets say it should go was that the realization you got right when you got to your words smacked in the face with the fact that you had to manage these people I was the smartest CPA on the planet coming into this business. So yeah, I had all the, uh, all the right uh, measures that I could deploy in, in, the, in the bike shops. And that's, uh, yeah, getting punched in the mouth with uh, the people side of this business was something that I had to ramp up really quickly on, on how to, you know, work with people. Let me follow up on that because I'm always curious about that, whether it's a motorcycle industry or the marine industry. And, you know, as a CPA, there are, there are a whole lot of, there's a lot of training you got to go through before you become a CPA or a doctor or a physical therapist or a fill in the blank. Yet, I just want to run a retail store. You jump right in. Why, why do you think that lack of training, and I wouldn't say it's a lack of training. I would say it's a lack of assumption that there's training needed prior to going and opening a retail store or bringing people in 
Where, where do you think that mindset comes from? Is it the history of cycling or just the culture or what are your thoughts? I guess as an entrepreneur, there's a blindness about um, what could could punch you in the face. So for the enthusiasts, they, they see what the, the fun is in the business and um, they, they maybe recognize that there is hard work behind it. They just don't know how easy it is to lose money when you lose focus. That right there, what you just said, it cannot be brushed by is that outside of ownership, it's hard for frontline staff to understand how easy it is to lose money. That 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 is a fantastic little nugget that I hope will be the intro to this podcast because that is <laughs> that is so true. It's It is super hard to make money, and my goodness, is it super easy to lose money. I, I have a follow-up question that's completely off in a different direction, James, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are. There's a lot of times that I go into bicycle dealerships and you get this somewhat in the motorcycle industry. And, you know, I don't feel that much in the marine industry, Sam. I, I want your take on this as well. But most specifically in the bicycle industry, when I walk into bicycle dealerships and I would say a lot of emphasis on the service department, but I, I always feel like there's this elitist attitude coming from staff. Meaning when you're trying to buy a unit or you're trying to buy a seat or some nutrition or some gloves or a chain or you take your bike in for service, I always feel like I'm I always feel like I'm an idiot. And I wonder what your thoughts are and where that comes from and how you overcome it with your business. Give me give me your thoughts on that. That's a a feeling that's not lost. Um, and I'm incredibly sensitive to it. You know, you, you can watch it simply through security videos, you know, keep the sound off and just watch what people do. When yeah. They come in the door, they, they, they make a beeline left or right. They just, they just try to run from you. So mm -hmm. it's, um, I don't know that there's, there's a way to, to get away from that other than, you know, put a smile on your face and just welcome them in the store. It's going to be a constant issue um, because of the, the the notion that a bike can cost ten thousand dollars and and why they're and the the customers just not good enough. Yeah, and and I want to get deeper into that, and and I want to see if you can take me somewhere. And, and there, I, I want you to understand there is no right answer, but I have a theory on this. But I just wonder what it is about somebody that is drawn to go work in a bicycle store. And I think I understand it's, it's usually a well-educated demographic that um, usually has that racer or avid cyclist mentality. So it's a type a person, right now, this is probably where I could lose a lot of people. It's maybe some of some people that didn't necessarily pick up a ball or a bat or, you know, play football, play basketball, and I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that these people were shunned when when they were in school or, or when they're younger. But I feel like they have I think they're type A, they're super educated and they're they're very competitive. And I feel as though the connection to a customer that comes in your everyday customer just maybe not be connecting. And, and I don't know if you agree with me on that or you think that I'm out of my mind. Both answers are completely acceptable as well. So your thoughts. 
I was that guy. I yep. was that racer, the, the type A that, uh, you know, just wanted to crush everyone on that cookie ride. And yep. that was, that was not fun to ride with. <laughs> um, and so getting into that, into the business, uh, I wanted to have a business that was everything opposite of what I was. <laughs> mm. Interesting. <laughs> and, and so when we entered the business, um, there were a lot of people in my, my life that, um, that saw it as an opportunity, uh, to get things for free or, you know, discount mm. or something like that. And, and I turned that on its head. Um, there's, you know, again, the ability to lose money in this business is, is so easy. And it starts with, with discounting your crew there. There are oftentimes when Tony and I go into a room and we do a training and we don't know the name of a single person when we leave, not because we haven't solicited their name, but because they didn't engage their personality never came out. They sat there because they were told to be there. And then there's your crew. And that's, that's, that's not me blowing smoke. You got, you know, whether it's, whether it's Wes or whether it's Matt, um, I, I sit here and think about Matt. Matt reminds me of the lead singer of, of uh, Creed. And uh, like he just he looks like a cyclist. He makes wood furniture in his garage. He made me a straight razor made out of some special wood. It's like but as open and and jump. I, you know, how do I say this? They will jump right into a conversation with you with no ego at all. So, Tony, I don't I don't know what that answer is. Um James, you mentioned that you like to crush the the cookie rides out there. And for people who don't know the cookie ride, it's kind of like when you go on a 100-mile ride and they have cookies at the aid stations and stuff like that. And James is the guy putting the hammer down and is going right by it. And I am the guy who is enjoying the cookies at the cookie ride, um, knowing there might be a cocktail at the very end of it. So I think so much of that has to do with who we hire as well. You have a mindset of training, but it starts with are we putting a square peg in the round hole to start with are we hiring the arrogant former racer who is probably always going to be an arrogant former racer or are we hiring really good people who love cycling and then giving them the tools necessary but let me let me move past this because you talked about discounting um you're very in touch with your community and your staff and i'm just kind of wondering uh on the and i'm using air quotes here everybody on the heels of covid on on the backside hopefully we are uh, in some level when covid came Everybody got shut down for a period of time, and as as we move through this, here we are in June. Bicycle sales are through the roof, and I know mm-hmm. you're experiencing that as well. You and I talk frequently about how your stores are doing, and I'm wondering about all of those customers that you've sold a bicycle to uh, who maybe that's their first bike or maybe they didn't know you existed until just now. We can talk about why cycling is booming, but more importantly, how do you – uh, as an owner operator, stay in touch with all those people. How do you keep them connected to that vibe that they had when they were in your store when they bought their very first bike? Well, right now it's it's hiring every single person that um, that fits within our mold. Um, so we've we've added probably another fifteen percent to our our headcount um, just to you know be able to engage when when the customer comes in, but. Right now, we're, we're looking forward, uh, trying to figure out how do we get the the customer that um, you know perhaps they they bent their their derailleur and so it's not shifting 
quite right and and then they just leave the bike in the garage and and say they don't like cycling when it was really just um, a function of of getting the bike repaired um what i was talking about with the the future is is now engaging uh local governments to bring the realization that uh, maybe every Every person in, in our community now has a bicycle, and we have to teach them how, how to ride the, those bikes and, and maintain them. We're going to throw a party. Uh, there's there's some breweries uh, locally here that uh, we'll we'll engage with too, and, and get uh, get some bikes out there and, and do some clinics just to get folks to, to maybe learn how to ride in traffic or you know ride the trails and, and keep their bikes up to a hundred percent. James, for the people out there listening, how many stores do you currently have? Where are they located? And what's your plans in the future? So the, the stores that we have are under under three different brands, uh, Uptown Cycles in Charlotte, uh, First Flight Bikes in Statesville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and then Spirited Cyclist, which is in a couple towns north of Charlotte and Davidson and Huntersville. We've come together. I guess the question is, why do you have three different brands? It's a uh, you know a merry band of of uh, like-minded folks that uh, you know these are these are our enthusiasts who want people to ride bikes, and I just happen to take care of all the the back office stuff. For plans for expansion, um, is is very similar, where. You know, I want to have uh, a staff that just loves riding bikes, and and we take care of all the the hard stuff. There's, uh, you know, what's interesting about this this whole COVID situation is there's probably a lot of owners out there who have sold every single bike that they have, and they're sitting on a on a pile of cash, and they they don't know what to to do with it, or maybe they've they've spent it. Um, but they're going to have to put it back into inventory again. There's a lot of shops around in, in the country that, that don't have a succession plan. I'm interested in talking with folks that, that want to continue their business and, and be uh, on the front, and I can take care of the back. Did you hear that? that that's like, hey, I'm buying stores. That's what I heard. I'm buying <laughs> stores. I got four. I want 40. I'm buying stores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Hey, with four different locations, you have multiple manufacturers. James, you know that the only OEMs, original equipment manufacturers, that we play with at Garage Composites are the ones that we believe truly have the dealer interest in mind. I'm wondering, what do you think, other than building a quality product and putting it on your shelf, what role does the OEM play in the cycling industry? And um, and, and what do you think that role should be, whether it's in alignment with what role they play or something that you have a vision for? Uh, at, at its core, I, I believe the, the OEM supplies product to us as, as retailers uh, in, in the normal supply chain. You know, that, that multi, multi-channel strategy now is, is getting confusing for people. Can I, can I say that the supply chain is broken uh, you know, maybe it's it's being repaired uh, because there's there's so many ways for a customer to to purchase the the items that that they want. Um, what what should the uh, the role be for OEM? 
uh, would prefer that they they stay in that 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 channel and and respect us as as retailers. We're not doing a very good job at, at being retailers, so there's there's a lot of room for improvement for us. So let let me follow up on that one. When you say and, and, and I appreciate the fact that you said that, that we're not doing a very good job as retailers. Um, if I am a manufacturer and I can go um, in big box stores like Dick's Sporting Goods or something like that, or I could go direct to consumer or I could support the IBD, the independent bicycle dealership. At the point the IBD is presenting a an experience that is subpar, should I not look at direct cons- direct to consumer? Right. I'm, I'm really trying to understand the balance on both sides of the fence. Is it reasonable, James, in your mind that they look at direct to consumer when we have poor customer experience, typically because of lack of staffing or arrogance that Tony referred to earlier? We, we owe it to our our communities to to be there for wherever their their cycle is and 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 their their ridership. And and to your point, Sam, is. And when we drop the ball is, is we're forcing the customer to, to go elsewhere. And that's, um, that's on us all day long. That's fantastic, James. Uh, really great talking with you. Um, I love your answers and I think you're a pretty interesting dude, man. So when, uh, when are you writing that book and when's it coming out? I, I, I tried writing a book, uh, when I was younger and, uh, the problem is it's, uh, it's a narrative on, on, history and i'm i'm more interested in what the the future holds so i can't write write a book on the future well it's because you're drinking eight dollar wine in college that's why you got (laughs) roadblocked so uh james after all this is done what's what's your exit strategy on all this once we have assembled the uh the finest uh group of people that um that as as retailers uh my intent is to uh, and and through teaching our folks about uh, business ownership, um, I'm very interested in selling it into employee ownership so that it, it becomes organic in nature. And if, if everyone has skin in the game, uh, I believe everyone is, is very interested in the success of the stores at that point amazing to think that that's exactly what it would take is to to get some ownership and and to understand how you could really put forth a customer service driven businesses by giving some of your staff ownership into that business and some of the best businesses out there i mean you look at some of the patagonias out there that um, are employee owned it's fantastic what that does for the business and and for the industry i'm just looking over some of my notes Easy to lose money when you're not focused. <laughs> Such a simple, subtle statement, but it just square in the face, man. I love that that you want to turn that over to your employees. That's a that, that's certainly one way to go, and one that I think all the employees will rally behind. So, good luck in your efforts to do that, James. Well, it's it's you know to lose money in this business is simply as is paying your your bills late um, or not paying attention to when you when you put in an order that the pricing was wrong, uh, when the warranty items for your lights didn't work, you know, did you chase that down? There's, um, and we just had a, a $2,300 charge back because uh, a fella put in an online order and came in and got the bike and it sounded like uh, he was using somebody else's credit card. So, you know, there's, there's so many ways to lose money. <laughs> 
Boy, is there, man. James Good, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much for coming on a Garage Cast. This has been episode number 25. You can hear us at your favorite places to listen to your podcast, be it Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts. If you want more information on us, you can go to www.garagecomposites.com. For Sam Dantzler, I'm Tony Gonzalez. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys next time.